There's the body and blood of Christ, and then there's the accidents of the bread and wine. What the doctrine is trying to clarify with transubstantiation is that the accidents of the bread and wine, how it tastes, what texture it has, these kinds of things, that remains. But what is transformed is the substance, what underlies it. With the eyes of faith, we see the body and blood. Welcome to the Catholic Theology Show, sponsored by Ave Maria University. I'm your host, Michael Dauphiné, and today I am joined by friend and colleague, uh, Dr. Jeffrey Walkie, uh, professor of theology at Ave Maria University. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, We're so glad to have you here today to continue our series on the Eucharistic revival that's been called for by uh, the U.S. Catholic bishops. And the bishops are asking us to kind of dive back into the mystery of the Eucharist. Uh, And I think they're doing it uh, in part, one of the things they talk about in the document is because in a certain sense, right, we're we're in an age of loneliness. We're in an age of isolation, an age of maybe fragmentation, individualism, all these different elements. And Christ is right there, right? Mm -hmm. You know, the, the, the kind of the, the, the one whom we long for is with us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We are not alone. He has given us his presence right in the Eucharist. And and what a just a wonderful reminder, right? We need to kind of, I feel, we need to re-embrace these themes uh, so that we can really uh, carry out uh, this Eucharistic revival first in us, right? And then in others. Uh, it's interesting, the... Actually, the bishops are calling for a three-year revival. Uh, I think first at the diocesan level, then at the parish level, uh, which uh, will be, I think, in the summer of 2023. And then the last year will be a great national uh, Eucharistic Congress. Uh, But then there's a year four, which is mission, Mm -hmm. which is how do we go share the good news? But I remember in some ways, right, you, you have to first, like, is this really not something merely that I believe to be true? But in a way, has it entered into the kind of deep core beliefs that motivate and guide, uh, you know, my daily living? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, there's just so much here uh, that I'd love to do. And, and for today, I've really asked you on the show to help help our listeners kind of and viewers dive into this understanding of, right, how do we think about uh, approaching the Eucharist, especially through, right, the common doctor of the church, mm-hmm. St. Thomas Aquinas, uh, so kind of focusing on uh, Aquinas and the Eucharist. Now, you've been teaching, uh, I think, the sacraments course at the graduate level at Ave Maria uh, for probably, what, about five or more years now? This is my sixth This year, is your yeah. sixth year. Yeah. So so it's wonderful. You teach all course on the sacraments, uh, right? You you then you know teach the Eucharist uh, kind of with the teachings of Aquinas. Uh, and so, right, this is something you've, you know, you've uh, pondered greatly, not only what the mystery is, but how to hand on the mystery mm-hmm. uh, to students. Uh, and so I think it's just a wonderful opportunity uh, for our listeners and, and viewers to be able to kind of like get a peek, a little like a little window into uh, your class. Even before we talk about, right, the Eucharist per se, what are uh, like, what are things that you want students to understand about the sacraments kind of in general, uh, maybe what are some confusions or misunderstandings that you think students often bring in that you can help redirect, or at least ones that are maybe common in our 
age or culture? How, how do you want to set up the class so that students can kind of learn what you're trying to teach? Well, I think there are two things that I, I try to get at at the very beginning of the semester. One of them has to do with liturgy considered broadly as formation of, of the human being. And as we go through some of the texts, like Spirit of the Liturgy or, or even uh, documents from Vatican II, I think it's important for them to just recognize, it, it, they might know it, but maybe it just kind of passes by, uh, that the day is marked liturgically, the hour is marked liturgically, mm. the month is marked liturgically, time and space, all of it is marked liturgically in the Catholic life. Um, and in a way, even though it might not feel like you're going to the gym and you're working on uh, certain muscle groups or something, but you're, you are being habituated into a certain way of living hmm. or can be. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so that it's a real opportunity uh, to, to take seriously what's going on uh, in the liturgy. But then, mm -hmm. of course, once we get to the Eucharist, the, um, the significance of that we go through for a long time. <laughs> um, the other thing has to do with, I think, it, it's been recognized by some theologians that at certain times, say maybe in the last several hundred years, sacramental theology was sometimes reduced to validity, like conversations about validity. Did it happen? Did okay, the sacrament yeah. happen? Did, did, well, is this person ordained? Is the mm -hmm. Eucharist there? And then with liturgical renewals of the 19th century and then into the 20th century, I think they were starting to draw back on the, the patristic period, the medieval period, and really show the richness, the intellectual richness, the spiritual richness um, of the, uh, well, and scriptural richness of the sacraments. Um, yeah. So, you know, going, digging into scripture and showing all the various places, whether Old Testament or New, uh, how God has been revealing the, these things to us or pointing forward to what Christ is going to uh, institute. Yeah, and I think those two themes really go together because part of the way we're being formed and shaped and habituated in the liturgical right, practices is so that the liturgy can bear fruit, mm -hmm. right? And so that's, it's not merely just, right, is it a valid or an invalid? Although, you know, let's hope it's a valid. Right, so right. Obviously that's important. But also what are the fruits that this, baptism is meant to bear mm -hmm. what are the fruits right that the mass that the eucharist is meant to bear uh right if the sacrifice if the mass is a kind of uh, a, a sacrifice of thanksgiving right mm -hmm. eucharist is actually right the right. Uh, greek for thanksgiving uh that how, how do we let that bear fruit in our lives so that we live lives of thanksgiving right mm -hmm. kind of eucharistic lives uh in ways that we you know, so that that you're right. I think that sense of the that the liturgical renewal uh, has been going on for a while, right? Beginning, you know, around the, the turn of the century, the turn of the last century, right. 1900s. Uh, Saint Pius X uh, was such a great lover of uh, the Eucharist. He encouraged a lot of daily reception. Also, lowered the age for first communion so people could begin to receive, right? But the idea wasn't merely just to kind of check off more boxes. Right. The goal was to right help help Christians discover, uh, right, the, the, you know, the, the great meaning in their lives that comes from participating in the very relationship of the Son to the Father, 
which is given to us right in the Eucharist, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So I, I think those are uh, really beautiful themes. Well, I might add one more thing. Yeah, uh, what you you bring up that it, we want it to bear fruit. Yeah, and this, a, a nice image that I use al- in almost every class I teach is uh, from St. Thomas's inaugural lectures of a mountain mm-hmm. receiving rain, and then the the water flowing down the mountain, and then bearing fruit at the foot of the mountain. And yeah. so you have this idea of sacred wisdom mm-hmm. coming down to the mountain. There's nothing the mountain can do to get it. It can't jump up and go get it. It has to wait to receive it from the cloud. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so we wait to receive from God. But then as teachers and students, and then students become teachers all the way down through the tradition, we're passing it on that it might bear fruit. Now, ultimately, yeah. that fruit's eternal life. Yeah. But you could make an analogous case for what we're receiving. Mm-hmm. We're, and, and Ratzinger you know, is big on this is that, that we, we wait and we receive from God what proper worship is. And we yeah. don't, we don't make it up ourselves mm-hmm. because then it might become self-assertion or something like that. And so this image of the mountain, we were receiving how to worship and we pass it on that it might bear fruit. Yeah. I love that image from uh, Ratzinger, uh, who of course uh, later became Pope Benedict. Um, uh, and, but that idea that the givenness of the liturgy, the givenness mm-hmm. of revelation, and that we have to be receptive. And uh, what a great image uh, that you just gave us from Aquinas, that idea, right? That the mountains right, can do nothing to earn water, right? Mm-hmm. They have to just wait to receive it. Uh, but once they do, then if they transmit it as water, mm-hmm. then it can, of course, bear fruit. Uh, so that's really a wonderful uh, image of, of thinking about it. Now, one thing I think that maybe just to kind of, I don't know, like, you know, raise an objection or certainly I know when, uh, you know, when I was studying theology, maybe in the 90s, uh, there were a lot of liturgical theologians, sacramental theologians that were kind of dissenting from the classical teachings of the church. And they were almost so focused on trying to make the liturgy relevant to make kind of to make sure that we could understand the fruit that was born, uh, that the emphasis became more on the community and the celebration and the idea that the sacraments are symbols, or not not only symbols, but they were merely symbols that, right, baptism is the entrance into the community, or, right, the Eucharist is a meal of friendship and fellowship as Jesus welcomed sinners and uh, you know, these sorts of different things. And and there was almost maybe a tendency to make things, want to make things so relevant uh, that they would often, and these were really dissenting theologians, mm-hmm. uh, but but they were pretty influential mm-hmm. in, in a lot of uh, circles within Catholic theology. You know, again, where the, the kind of the, the symbolic element became so, it became overwhelming. And they almost thought that, I don't know how to put it, that the more doctrinally, the more we held to the doctrine of the sacraments, uh, somehow we were taking away from the the meaning of the sacraments. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, how, how how do you respond to those uh, to those kind of readings that want to make the sacraments ultimately really symbolic? Well, I think, I mean, a few things. Uh, for one, I, I think it, it it's not just say a Catholic problem that, and, I, and I'm. A convert myself, um, that even within the Protestant world, there, there's sometimes an emphasis on being attractive to bring people in. Um, 
And I, I don't really, I, I don't sympathize with that very much, to <laughs> mm-hmm. be honest, because shouldn't Christ's presence be attractive enough? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so making things more attractive or t- making it more about the community, which Ratzinger would have n- no patience for, because yeah. anytime it turns us in on ourselves or on someone else, um, we're no longer worshiping God. We're effectively worshiping ourselves. Um, I like how he, you know, any if anything draws applause, then that mm-hmm. was probably not something <laughs> that that was appropriate for yeah. for the mass. Right, the whole mass yeah. is an applause to God. <laughs> right, right. right. <laughs> it says, God to God be the glory. Yeah. Absolutely. So if, if it's the music, mm-hmm. it can be beautiful, but it should be lifting us up yeah, to yeah. God. And so that sort of focus, I, I don't have much sympathy with. The symbolic stuff um, is, is a bit odd to me insofar as um, we, if we say Christ is present and Christ told us he'd be present, um, I mean, that's a significant aspect of what it means to be friends in the ancient world. And so uh, to be present is, is one, one way you're, you are a friend. And he's making himself present. He's making us uh, himself a, f- a friend. But if it, if it starts to move too much toward symbolic, it's nice to have a picture of your friend yeah. that's pointing towards your friend. Mm-hmm. But that's, that's not quite the same sort of presence at mm-hmm. all. Um, so not someone there to be with you and, and, and well, literally commune. Um, and, and so the moves to that sort of thing, not only does it move away from the traditional understanding of how Christ is there and maybe even more towards a, a Protestant perspective, um, it, it just seems to evacuate the idea of his presence mm-hmm. as friend. Yeah, right. And in some ways, the only way perhaps that the sacraments and the liturgy can truly bear fruit is when they are truly something. Mm-hmm. They have to have a real density, right? A, mm-hmm. a real veracity that that it's the doctrinal and metaphysical reality that allows us to have the transforming experience. That's so that like, right, being baptized is is an entrance into a community, right? But it's better than mm-hmm. merely mm-hmm. the entrance into the community of the people you're there. It's entering into the communion of the saints, mm-hmm. right? And and that's something that's all, And but that's what gives it meaning. Mm-hmm. Because ultimately in this world, we're also facing, like we're facing major things like death and suffering. And mm-hmm. do we have meaning, right, beyond this life? And I think that's in a certain sense what the sacraments promise us in their, again, their, 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 in, in their doctrinal richness. Right, right. And um, that they, they contain and confer grace, right, mm-hmm. is hugely significant. And there's been debates about what that means through the years. But, I mean, that it is affecting something is significant. Mm-hmm. And I, I think we all probably at points lose sight of that. When we're at Mass, we get distracted and, and we don't really recognize uh, the, how that's a mercy, my God, to to be conferring grace in the sacraments. Um, and if that's not the case, if it, I mean, I, th- I think Ratzinger has the little line about, it'd be like a bank note, nothing backing a bank note. No. It'd just be mm-hmm. a piece of paper. Mm-hmm. And I, 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 that sounds right. Like if you, yeah. if you don't mm-hmm. really think it's conferring anything, then yeah. it, right. it's a check you can't cash. It's a check you can't that's cash. Not, that's not the kind I want. Right. Uh, yeah, it'd be like a you know, bouncing checks. I like that. That's a the problem with much of modern theology. <laughs> uh, so, you know, th- that, that, that image you just present there, 
or presented there, uh, I think it's 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 really kind of a rich one uh, to think about. What what would you say in a way is kind of as 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 we turn to Aquinas, uh, what are some maybe of of the key principles that Aquinas brings to his teaching of the Eucharist uh, that help us, you know, kind of receive these realities more fully? Well, I mean, he's um, largely using uh, philosophical categories to sort of make intelligible this this idea that Christ is present, and he's drawing on Aristotle very often. And you know, one of the key distinctions that he makes is going to be between substance and accident. And um, and, and briefly, I mean, the substance is, exists of itself, and, and an accident has to exist in a, a, a substance. And so. You know, I'm a human being, right? I'm substantial. My substantial form, you might say, the mm-hmm. form of what I am, is to be a human being. But that I'm six feet tall is an accident to that. Mm-hmm. If I, yeah. if for some reason, when you get older, when you get older and you become five ten, that's a change in your appearance, right? It's a change in your accidents, but it's not. You're not a. You're still a human being. I'm still a human being. Yeah. Right? And I think one thing that's difficult there too is when we talk about this aspect of sometimes we think of substance in modern terminology in a kind of material sense mm-hmm. substance is that which we can touch mm-hmm. you know you can feel something substantially that's the way we use the word but the word as you're describing it it's not the substance you touch it's the essence that you are right so yeah. your personhood your human nature is more than your than your flesh that i touch absolutely and I, this is significant in a lot of ways even if you get into moral questions or questions of uh, social justice and mm-hmm. these kinds of things because recognizing that there are all these differences. So, you know, suppose somebody is, is you know, intellectually incapacitated or something like this. Yeah. That's that's not a change in their substance, right? So mm. we they have dignity yeah. regardless right. of mm-hmm. that accident. That accident mm-hmm. is not, def- yeah. doesn't define them. Yeah, an unborn child cannot speak. Right. Right. An unborn child, unborn child may not really have uh, what we would, I don't know, you know, it, it's not going to have advanced levels of understanding. Right. But it's, what is it? Right. It's like obvious. What is it? It's a child. It's right? a and child. So that sense of, yeah. That, that, and it's that, accidentally, substance. in a sense, at this stage. It's an, mm-hmm. a, it's, it, it's an accident to what it is that, right. that it's at that mm-hmm. stage. And so uh, the, these categories are really helpful. And, and, you know, substance is that what stands under, right? Okay. And so it, it's, it, we're through and through what we are. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so that distinction, just to have it, begins to be very helpful in, in sort of articulating yeah, the so, Eucharist. Now, I think uh, Aquinas is uh, certainly one of kind of the, the great teachers of the, what we call the doctrine of transubstantiation. Mm-hmm. It was actually um, affirmed in the Council of Lateran, mm-hmm. uh, which is in 1215. And it wasn't really taught at 1215 as though this was a new teaching that they were clarifying. They were really just stating it mm-hmm. as a reality. Um, it's not really until later, really, in the Council of Trent that mm-hmm. there were, I mean, there had been Eucharistic uh, debates and controversies sure. off and on, but that it was really uh, denied. But, you know, but this idea that, you know, transubstantiation, uh, the Council of Trent, I'm just reading from the Catechism here, says, because Christ our Redeemer said that it was truly his body that he was offering under the species of bread, it has always been the conviction of the Church of God, and this holy council now declares again 
that by the consecration of bread and wine, there takes place a change of the whole substance of the bread into the substance of the body of our Lord, and of the whole substance in, of the wine into the substance of his blood. This change the Holy Catholic Church has fittingly and properly called transubstantiation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, right, this is what's articulated. How would you explain transubstantiation kind of uh you know, in simple terms. Well, if we think about sort of, there's two sides to it. I mean, there's the body and blood of Christ, and then there's the accidents of the bread and wine. What the doctrine is is trying to, to clarify with transubstantiation is that the accidents of the bread and wine, how it tastes, what texture it has, you know, how much how, how much does it weigh, yeah. these kinds of things, those, that remains right mm-hmm. but what is transformed is the substance what underlies it what's behind you might say the mm-hmm. accidents and that's the body and blood of Christ and so even though visibly or even with touch mm-hmm. it it appears to be bread and wine those are just accidents that have the substance of body of the body and blood behind it and so if i mean you're still going to, like I said, taste the wine. You're yeah. st- it's going to have all these effects that it would have otherwise. Um, but yeah, I remember there was, I think, uh, I don't know, some some atheist or somebody, anyway, who they, they uh, did a electron microscope of the Eucharist. And they said, it's still bread. Mm-hmm. And you know, like Aquinas knew that, that, right. that it's going to look like bread all the way down materially. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, that's not that's not news. It's yeah. absolutely not news. I think, yeah, I know. I know the case you're talking about. Um, but like we don't, we see the bread and wine with our eyes, yeah. but with the eyes of faith, we see the body and blood. Um, and oh, that's so well put. It's, it's not unlike the way that, um, when someone in first century Palestine is encountering this man, Jesus, everyone can see that he's a man, but only the eyes of faith can see that he's a man and God at the yeah. same time. Mm-hmm. And so there's, there is something that faith affects. Um, yeah. That allows us mm-hmm. to, to then uh, see that, um, but that it's Christ substantially. It opens up so much more richness to understanding what's going on in communion, because if we're uniting with Him, we could, you know, certain traditions and maybe even within Catholicism at certain times, there could be a, a tendency toward individualism or something like that, um, where it's me and Jesus. I'm mm-hmm. uniting with Jesus. But the thing is, everyone else is uniting with Jesus. Mm-hmm. And so insofar as each of us is united with Jesus, we're united with each other. And yeah. so we're becoming the community that is his body, right? Wow. And, but not just that. So we could think of that as the, you know, the present community, but we're uniting ourselves with the others who are in communion with him in heaven. So we're participating in the heavenly sanctuary. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... The communion of saints, or and everybody's united through Him. Um, okay, that's one community, another community, but now uh, space and time, we're uniting with everyone else who's communing at that time, mm-hmm. and then we're also united with Calvary and the cross itself, and so and then we're uniting with sort of an eschatological reality that's yet to come. We're sort of in the you know already but not yet stage that mm-hmm. it, that is the the church. Um, so it, that we can commune sub- substantially just opens up all of these other ways of thinking about what we're doing. Uh, that's 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 so powerful. Um, I, I love the idea too. I, I 
sometimes when I, you know, you teach uh, students or talk to people about this idea is we want to be, we're, we're used to thinking of transaccidentation, right? Yeah. So instead of transubstantiation, if we talk about transaccidentation, if I look at a picture of myself when I was three or when I was 13 mm. or when I was 30 or now that I'm 50, right? You know, it's, mm. the pictures look different. Right, absolutely. Right, you know, I'm changing on the outside. My accidents, my appearances are changing, but my, 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 but the identity of myself over time is right. So, th we're, so that's what we're used to within the world. Mm -hmm. We're used to these kinds of of changes of appearances. Mm -hmm. right? Here we have right, and of course it's a miracle. Just like the incarnation Absolutely. is a miracle. I think mm -hmm. uh, Blaise Pascal uh, has something uh, beautiful where he's he's writing uh, in the. Uh, not only in the time after the Reformation, but the time after Descartes and a lot of both philosophical and religious questioning. Um, but at one point he says, you know, if you can believe in the incarnation, I mean, the, 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 what's the, the problem with the Eucharist? The Eucharist <laughs> isn't, isn't hard to believe in. Uh, but that idea that in the Eucharist, we simply have the reverse. It now is the body and blood of Jesus Christ because God said so. Mm -hmm. When he said, let there be light, there was light. Mm -hmm. right? And when he said, this is my body and blood. It truly becomes his body and blood. Uh, but God continues, right, to approach us in the sensible ways that it's appropriate for us to eat bread and drink wine. Mm -hmm. So he comes to us in appearances that are suitable to our nature. Right? And it kind of reminds me, by the way, just to like uh, kind of close that whole circle. If we come back to that earlier discussion of the symbolic character of the sacraments, the whole beauty of the sacraments is that God comes to meet us in sensible signs. Mm -hmm. Right? Aquinas will say that it's a, we're sensible beings. We understand the intelligible through the sensible. So it's kind of kind and fitting of God to come meet us in Scripture and in the sacraments and in the incarnation through sensible signs. And to heal us where we're hurt. Yeah, exactly. Um, because it, you know, it, it's down here that, that yeah, we're hurt. Yeah, right. So, so, you know, it's our hearts that hurt, <laughs> not just our minds. Right. And so, you know, and 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 so what a you know, it's like it's kind of how how I don't know how strange of human beings then to take what is so beautiful of God that He communicates His very self to us mm -hmm. in the means of sensible signs, and then we say, okay, let's just focus on the signs. Like the whole beauty of the signs is that they are signs of God's presence. God's healing power. Uh, you know, we're coming up on a break, uh, so uh, let's go ahead and uh, pause for a minute. And, and when we come back, uh, let's. I want to make sure. Let's talk a little bit more. Uh, I love the fact that you said transubstantiation kind of bears fruit. So let's talk mm -hmm. a little bit more about the way Aquinas uh, emphasizes some of those things. And then I also really would like to turn to uh, right. Aquinas is not only a great doctor. I mean, he is a doctor of the church, and he's of course a brilliant theologian. Uh, certainly one of uh, you know, the most brilliant, but he was also a great poet, mm -hmm. right? And he 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 wrote beautiful hymns about uh, the Eucharist for the feast of Corpus Christi at the request of the Pope. Uh, so when we come back, let's uh, let's dive into some of those. Sounds great. You're listening to the Catholic Theology Show, presented by Ave Maria University. If you'd like to support our mission, we invite you to prayerfully consider joining our Annunciation Circle, a monthly giving program aimed at supporting our staff, faculty, and Catholic faith formation. You can visit us at AveMaria.edu to learn more. Thank you for your continued support, and now let's get back to the show. 
Welcome back to the Catholic Theology Show. And uh, our guest today is Dr. Jeffrey Walkie, who teaches theology at Ave Maria University. And uh, we've been talking with him today, uh, especially about the mystery of the Eucharist as seen through uh, St. Thomas Aquinas, uh, right? Uh, the, the common, uh, the angelic doctor. And so again, welcome to the show again, and thank you for being here. Well, thank you again as well. Excellent. So we were talking a little bit about kind of trying to really un not only understand what the doctrine of transubstantiation means, but also like why it's a meaningful document, mm -hmm. like how it becomes meaningful for mm -hmm. us. So, you know, what are some things you might say, maybe what are other ways of thinking about, right, the Eucharist that might become, I don't know, you know, less meaningful? Why did the church reject them? Why did the church hold to this particular expression? You mean transubstantiation? Yeah. Uh, well, I, I, as we sort of talked about earlier, I mean, th that he's really present mm -hmm. is, is significant, if nothing else, like psychologically. That mm, when, yeah. you, when you're going to Mass, you're going to encounter the Lord. It's also scriptural, yeah. which um, even though it's articulated in philosophical terms mm -hmm. that have been appropriated by the church, it's it's John six, mm -hmm. and and so being Catholics and being scripturally based, um, it's important that we do what he tells us to. Yeah, yeah. not mm -hmm. not as if he's a dictator or a tyrant or something, mm -hmm. but um, that it, it's good for us. Yeah, that's um. Uh, well, but I think it's. I remember uh, one thing that Aquinas teaches in the Summa and the Tertiate parts where he speaks about the sacraments. He on the Eucharist, he says that. Um, somehow kind of the Eucharist is somewhere in between creation mm -hmm. and natural changes. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, he says that like creation, creation, when God creates, has nothing, and then he creates out of it something, mm -hmm. right? He says there's no kind of common subject. There was nothing, and now there's something. right? And he says in a certain sense, right, the transubstantiation is kind of like that. It's it's weird. There was bread. Now there is, right? Mm -hmm. um, now there is, you know, the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And and some people wonder, well, how can that be? Because where's the common subject? But the whole point of it is that there's not a common subject because it's like creation. And in many ways, you know, if you're familiar with the biblical, um, you know, how, how central biblical imagery is, say, to the beginning of John, it's not just John six right. about the Eucharist, right? All of John one is about the new creation. It's he's, you know, the gospel of John and the Holy Spirit uh, helping uh, to speak through John is saying, right? In the beginning was the word, mm -hmm. right? And then this word becomes flesh. Uh, and there's all sorts of other interesting parallels. They're like, you know, seven days right. in John and seven days of creation. And so in a way it's the new creation. So if there's a new creation, then the Eucharist, in a certain sense, is the new creation par excellence. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's kind of a, a neat thing. So yes, to a certain extent, it's miraculous, but so is creation. Mm -hmm. Like creation is miraculous. We could never, we can't ever see ourselves being created, mm -hmm. right? It's something we just have to believe on faith. It's mm -hmm. actually interesting in Milton's Paradise Lost, one of the things he has uh, the character of Satan do is Satan denies the fact that he was created. He says, how do we know we were created? How do we know we haven't always existed? You know, why do I have to owe my obedience to the Son of God? How do I know He created me? Um, and 
And and in a way, right, the Eucharist is that sense of like, wait a second, you know, yeah, the creation is a miracle. Yeah, it's, mm-hmm. it's you know, and, and the Eucharist is a miracle, right? Um, but they're miracles that give life. We live within creation. And then we, in the Eucharist, we live the new life of the new creation. Anyway, I just love that kind of imagery that Aquinas gives us. Right, and it's the this notion of new creation. I mean, it's not, it's not just John, but it's, it's in continuity with a, a way of thinking from Israel is that the flood is new creation. The exodus is new creation. Mm-hmm. Crossing the Jordan is new creation. New creation is just peppered throughout. Yeah. And, and the imagery that shows up in the flood narrative that's also from the creation narrative. And then what happens mm-hmm. in exodus and it's it's in the creation. Narrative. All yeah. these sorts of mm-hmm. things. And so it's it, unbeknownst to us, it was pointing to Christ the whole time and the yeah. new creation that he brings. Um, and so that, that there's this great continuity with the old and the new mm-hmm. Testament, um, mm-hmm. I think is significant as well. Um, yeah. Yeah. So uh, anyway, I think it, like that sometimes can be a helpful way maybe for people who, who struggle with the, you know, miraculous character to see that it's not arbitrary. Right. This is, this is part of kind of the fulfillment of the whole plan of God right, right in the Eucharist. Um, one of the things that Aquinas says in his commentary on the Gospel of John is he says that in the Eucharist, the whole of Christ's passion is present. Mm-hmm. So he says all the effects of the passion and even of the resurrection can be attributed to the Eucharist because, right, the Eucharist is basically Jesus Christ and the whole of his passion and resurrection. Uh, so could you... You know, maybe just talk a little bit more about that. Well, I mean, we're participating in his offering of himself. And and earlier I spoke about, you know, part, the, the, it's participating in the cross. It's participating in eschatological. Yes. I mean, we're entering into, or at least some in some way, to that offering of the lamb uh, in the heavenly sanctuary. Um, and it it's just, I mean, it's, it's just sort of a beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. And it's... Um, that that he would go so far to do that. Now, I mean, this is slightly unrelated, but when we think about what's going on in transubstantiation, and that by virtue of it, we're participating because it, it 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 takes up yes, ever the whole passion, right? And and so it's his body that's there that was on the cross and that it's being that's being offered uh, in heaven. But it's not just you might say Christ as well because. If you think about, um, this is going to be a technical term, the, no, word, the word concomitance. Okay. Uh, mm-hmm. Something comes with something else. Uh, okay. And this is sort of mm-hmm. a partial explanation of why is it that we can receive only the, the host and not have to receive the, the wine, um, is that it comes with it. So it's it's in you, mm-hmm. those are united in Christ. And so mm-hmm. when we receive the body, we're also, in a way, receiving the blood. Yeah. Um, but also, and also the soul and, and also the, soul, the divinity, divinity. Yeah. right, right, right. So mm-hmm. it, by virtue of this concomitance, concomitance, what okay. comes with it. Yeah. But in a sort of extended sense, where what comes with Christ is the father and the Holy spirit. Um, and, and yeah. this isn't touched yeah. on very much. I mm-hmm. think Matthias Shaban, a uh, 19th century theologian talks about it. Um, but that there is this sense that, I mean, we, most of the time we're talking about the way we're communing with Christ and that is sort of the heart of it, but there's also a sense in which the Trinity is there too. 
if that yeah, makes any sense. Absolutely. I think that's a beautiful thing, right? That in the Eucharist, we're receiving the Holy Spirit, we're receiving uh, the Son, we're receiving the Father. Yeah. Now, not substantially. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's not, not substantially. substantially. Yes, so yes, that's, they're not incarnate. They're not, they're not it's incarnate, not a, it's not a real presence, yes, per yes, se. Yes, yeah. And in some ways, this goes even to, I think, Ephesians 2.18, mm-hmm. uh, where Paul will say that, you know, it's, it's through this, it's in the Spirit, through the Son, through Christ, that we have access to the Father, mm-hmm. right? We're, uh, and, and you see that within the Eucharistic liturgy, right? It's it's in the spirit through the son to the father, but all of that is our reality. We're really entering into the very mystery Absolutely. of the Trinity. So the pa- um, it's the passion, yes, it's the whole thing. Yeah, but it's it's mm-hmm. also there's, there's more. Yeah, and it's all that the passion was meant to accomplish, which is really to restore us to that trinitarian life. Um, and you know, it also Aquinas also speaks. You know, you can um, uh, maybe develop this. Aquinas also talks about the whole Christ. Right, so the whole Christ. Where it's not only the concomitance is the um, mutual indwelling of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit together, um, but what's the whole Christ for Aquinas? You know, the certain sense of the totus Christus, as was described uh, by Augustine. Well, I mean, at least in part, it has to do with what you noted earlier. I mean, body, blood, soul, and divinity, yes. and, and all that. But that then, but also the body that is the people, mm-hmm. and, and these kinds of things. Um, that that he is going to highlight. Yeah, right. Yeah, we don't just receive in a way, um, you know, to kind of put an arresting image in our heads, right? We don't just receive a decapitated head. Right. 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 We receive Christ in his head and Christ in his body. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. And that's, that's kind of w- weird. I mean, what does it mean to say that we receive in the Eucharist, right? other members of the body of Christ, right? That when I go to mass, I'm somehow, I mean, right? That seems kind of like, I think people might just want to receive Jesus, not have to receive their neighbor. <laughs> True. Yes. Uh, now, I mean, part of it is we have to remember that, I mean, we're talking about his substance, right? And, and um, I, I've, you know, some people are like, are we eating his hair uh-huh. or something like that? Yes. And we need, or the whole of his body. Well, Substantially, I mean, when we start to think about you know the whole of him, you might you're starting to talk about qualities and accidents and mm. that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. We're receiving him wholly, so we receive in a way his substance, what he is, but without the his accidents. It's kind of a beautiful saving mystery in a way, right? We don't. It's it's yeah. hard to fathom, and, sure. and so yeah. uh, likewise, when we're thinking about well, in, how do we name the, the communion we have with? the other people yeah um it is a mystery i mean mm-hmm. I, I i tend to not want to bring up mystery too soon very often okay um because i think sometimes we can go further than others might think we can in terms of making intelligible this 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 thing it is a mystery though yeah uh the way like how are we attached to these other people but mm-hmm. we are in, we are in christ and by virtue of being his body um, and we're the various members. Um, it's it's through him. Yeah, the one image that I found helpful is that substantially, Christ's body and blood, soul, and divinity are present. Mm-hmm. That's the transubstantiation. I'm not receiving. I'm receiving the flesh of Jesus. I'm not receiving the flesh of Jeff Walkie. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Um, but Aquinas says we are part of the full effect of communion. Is that I am united to the body, mm-hmm. right, um, in faith and love. 
mm-hmm. right? So that I end up with kind of a moral union, mm-hmm. right? Not a not a substantial union, but a moral union, so that when I receive Christ, I receive in a certain sense all of Christ, and I receive everyone Christ loves. Mm-hmm. Right. It's like if I know you, I don't even not even know your children very well, but I kind of already love them or have affection for them because right, they're the children of my friend. Mm-hmm. So um, so in that sense, we do have a deep, genuine, meaningful union that I think Aquinas uh, really emphasized, right, that this this orientation of us to the body of Christ is very important. Right. And in that sense, it's very real. The fact that it's not substantially present doesn't mean that it's any less real. It's just a different mode that's appropriate for different human beings coming together in love. Right. And I, I going back to something you mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. um, just the, the doctrine and the difficulty that people have with the doctrine, thinking about substance or whatever, um, is that we do think materially. Yes. And so we think about stuff mm-hmm. and how stuff is united. Like how, how's this table put together? Yeah. And so mostly I think when we think about, you know, uniting to something, you think some physical reality. And so mm, that, I think like that, glue, like right. we glue two pieces glue, of wood together. <laughs> right. and this is union. Exactly. And mm-hmm. so I think that can sometimes, you know, blur what's actually going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and like you said, with, that it be a moral union. It's not a substantial union, but it's also not a physical union. So sometimes I think whether through catechesis yeah, yeah. or whatever mm-hmm. is that you sort of, don't go down those blind yeah, alleys. Yeah, yeah. And, and moral unions might turn out to be probably perhaps the the deepest unions that we know as human beings, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the you know the oh, uh, you know the love is stronger than death. I don't know these just kind of basic images that uh, you know the love we might have for family members, the love we might have for close friends. Uh, these sorts of loves are I don't know, I mean you know they they are in a certain sense the strongest. Mm-hmm ties that we experience so to see this kind of taken up into the eucharist is not is uh, is not a small thing Mm -hmm. Uh, and i I love to uh turning a little bit here we also remember aquinas right is is not only of course a saint because his teaching is maybe kind of angelic Mm -hmm. you know of sorts but also because right he is a great lover of jesus christ Mm -hmm. Uh, right aquinas is one who when, when he wanted to become a Dominican because he wanted just to, you know, kind of live in this evangelical freedom of preaching the gospel, uh, his, right, his older brothers who were knights in a castle, right, locked him up, mm-hmm. you know, for over a year. And at one point even sent in a prostitute to try to, like, dissuade him of his vocation to be a Dominican. Uh, and so he's a great, like, he loves Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's willing to a certain extent, you know, sacrifice uh it's kind of beautiful one time they send in his sister apparently too to try to convince him and anyway she leaves uh with the decision to enter a convent uh so uh, he <laughs> i was, think he won that battle exactly he was kind of <laughs> persuasive uh and so there's a story by one of his biographers that after he'd written uh the section the, the 73 to 83 of the tertia pars he puts it on the altar and he spends time in prayer and basically, he's just like, you know, Jesus, whatever I've written here, this is for you. And I think it's a beautiful image for all theology that, yes, we need to think about God. We need to mm-hmm. think about the mysteries of faith. If we don't think about the mysteries of faith and try to organize them rightly, we will organize them falsely. Mm-hmm. Right? On the other hand, they are a means to getting to know a person. Mm-hmm. And so he offers them. And, and uh, in the biographer's reporting, uh, Jesus 
somehow in, in some way communicated to Thomas, right? Thomas, you have written well of me, mm-hmm. right? Whatever you ask, I will give you, uh, right? And he says, non nisi te, right? Nothing but you, mm-hmm. nothing but you, Lord. Um, he doesn't want anything earthly. He doesn't even want the success of the Dominican order. He doesn't want the conversion of the Albigensians. He doesn't mm-hmm. want the union with the Greeks, which he was also working on. I mean, all of these things would have been wonderful, but he just, nothing but you, right? And that, in a certain sense, is like a beautiful summary, I think, of Thomas' life, but also of his devotion to the Eucharist, right? The Eucharist is that certain sense in which, yes, we want everything. We want all the problems of the earth to somehow be fixed. We want our loved ones to be fixed. We want the church's problems to be fixed. But fundamentally, right, if we're going to be happy, mm-hmm. what we learn from Aquinas is we want nothing but you, Lord. Right. And it's unfortunate how common I think people, when they think of Thomas, they just think of his intellect. And I think it does him a disservice. Um, even in in my own education, uh, I went to a, a Protestant divinity school. And during a lecture, one of the, it was a TA, I think. So maybe I'll be nice. But he, he drew a picture on the board of this figure with a giant head. And it was Aquinas that he was just this hyper rationalist that all, mm. and I was just like, he's a virtue ethicist. <laughs> like he, like and his love of Jesus, like all these different things. And it is great. It's, I mean, it's a, it's a treasure for the, for the tradition that he mm. has written all that he does yeah. or has. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think sometimes people forget yeah. Yeah. what a wonderful mm-hmm. person he is. He is a saint. Yeah. Right? So during the 13th century, uh, 1200s, uh, he, there's a greater devotion to the body and blood of Jesus Christ. The feast of Corpus Christi yep. is, uh, I think, initiated by, a, um, you know, by a woman, uh, uh, you know, I think saint eventually, but I can't remember her name right now. I can't but, either. Um, but uh, and she pleads to the Pope. The Pope agrees to set up the feast of Corpus Christi. We still celebrate it today. Mm-hmm. And the Pope asks Thomas Aquinas to write the liturgy, right? The hymns, the sequence, the, Mm -hmm. uh, so can you tell us anything about, right? These great hymns of the Feast of Corpus Christi. What do they tell us both about Aquinas's Eucharistic theology, but also his devotion? I mean, there, there's just a lot of joy, I think Mm -hmm. in, in some of the, in, 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 in sort of a thankfulness in Mm -hmm. what he, what he's uh, saying, uh, talking about deliverance and talking about redemption and, mm-hmm. and these various things and, and that, you know, God would stoop uh, to, to come down to us. And it, that, I mean, sure it, it comes out of a lot of study, um, but it, it seems there's something more going on there that it just is coming out of a, just a deep devotion that he has, that he's able to, uh, to pen what he does. Yeah. Um, and it, I think it is reflective of, his his yeah i mean his devotion to the eucharist in terms of piety yeah but uh, mm-hmm. it, but also that it it surely was informing his, his articulation of the eucharist mm-hmm. in the summa and and it basically trying to tell us what what a great gift we have here yeah and there are some beautiful lines there like pange lingua gloriosi right sing my tongue the savior's glory mm-hmm. Um, I think another one is like Lauda Sion, right? You know, basically praise Zion, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And just I, I adore thee, mm-hmm. right? I, I, um, so he the Toro, the Doro 
te devote. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yes, the, sorry, adoro te devote, which mm -hmm. is um, a lot of some some uh, Christians, some Catholics will pray that every Thursday, mm. right? Every Thursday can be a remembrance, just as every Friday is a remembrance of the Passion. Every Thursday is a remembrance of the institution of the Eucharist and mm. right, the prayer of the Adoro Te Devote, right? Devoutly I adore you, O hidden God. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think, again, it just thinking about how Thomas is actually is often thought about, that, you know, he writes, you know, in, a, in the form of, of the time with dis, disputations mm -hmm. and this kind of stuff. And for some, maybe that's not their cup of tea and they just see this giant intellect yeah. or whatever. Um, but what they, they forget is, you know, he's a master of the sacred page. Yeah. He's devoted to Jesus. Mm -hmm. And so all of that that we might see in the Summa is growing out of this devotion to mm -hmm. scripture and to yeah. Christ mm -hmm. and a reflection on it and then teaching on it because, yeah. you know, as seriously as he takes teaching, you know, the student needs to be humble and obedient in, in a sense. But he's, back to the image of the mountain, one of the great virtues of the good teacher is to be humble and obedient too because mm -hmm. you're humbly receiving something from somebody else, but then you're obedient to the truth and passing it on. Yeah, And I think, mm -hmm. you know, going from the sacred page, living the liturgical life, and then eventually writing these summas, it's almost, it's almost like that's not as nearly as important mm -hmm. as some of the other yeah. stuff that he did. And I think that also opens up Aquinas to become a model for all Christians because mm -hmm. it's hard to imitate his intellect, but, but all of us can model in a way receiving what has been taught, mm -hmm. receiving what scripture has communicated, receiving the beauty of the sacraments, and in our own small way, right, you know, trying to pass those on, mm -hmm. right? You know, uh, so I think that's a beautiful way of moving uh, through those and, and really seeing Aquinas as, right, uh, both a teacher, uh, but also an example. Mm -hmm. uh, well, and so. I think, and the, the idea, so, I mean, so many of the, the great intellects of the ancient medieval church we call yeah. saint. Yes. And plenty of modern theologians have noted that that's not always the case anymore. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, is, is that maybe we, I, I mean, Balthazar talked about, you know, prayer and kneeling as being significant for the theologian and all these mm -hmm. kinds of things, uh, that it becomes sort of a discipline, theology does, yeah. uh, like any other discipline or something. Yeah. And there ends up being this detachment between holiness or in mm -hmm. sanctity and, yeah. and the intellect. Um, but I mean, he would, he's a prime example going back to be like, I mean, he did it all like, yeah. and he's a good example. Mm -hmm. No, that's very well put. Yeah. It's uh, to be a theologian is not to be a detached observer mm -hmm. of an empirical phenomenon. Um, uh, but it's to be a participant in, mm -hmm. uh, right, uh, in in the very mysteries of God as they've been communicated and uh, and then enacted and ultimately really returned mm -hmm. uh, to God. So, uh, as, as we're closing up, I'd like to ask you three questions. Okay. Uh, so, uh, what's a book you've been reading? What's a book I've been reading? Uh, well, uh, I mean. I'm teaching a PhD seminar uh, at present on theological exegesis, and we're, we've started moving into sort of uh, 20th century um, stuff. So going through returning to encyclicals, um, really. Mm -hmm. um, but in terms of stuff that's just sort of on the side, um, what this is a tough question. Uh, uh, maybe is there one of those encyclicals that stands out that you might want to share with our listeners? 
Well, I mean, we're, we're beginning with the Philius um, okay. from the first Vatican Council and, and just trying to think through with the church as it moves into the 20th century, you know, what is re- revelation mm-hmm. and how does faith and re- how, yeah. do, how do they relate and, and what might that mean for how we exegete, meaning how do we interpret sure, scripture yeah. and then moving on because the early 20th century is where you start to see a cautious approach to uh, modern interpretations largely coming out of a Protestant Mm -hmm. tradition in terms of like historical studies and everything. And so you see the church just sort of cautiously take a look at this and then Mm -hmm. sort of with each subsequent encyclical, there seems to be a little bit more of an opening to think through how might we do this as Catholics. Now there's a bad way to do it Mm -hmm. and there's a good way to do it and and just try to think Mm -hmm. through um, how that's happening. Right. Yeah, while always uh, maintaining that kind of primacy of of revelation, which we get from Vatican One and Dave Filius, but that idea that um, we're not, you know, we we we're, we're not rationalists. We believe in revelation, but nor are we fideists. Mm-hmm. We actually believe that revelation is intelligible, mm-hmm. and therefore we can use human sciences and human uh, studies. So, uh, just next question: uh, What's a daily practice uh, that you engage in to draw closer to God? Well, I mean, obviously, prayer uh, and and whether that's with the family or with my classmates, with my students. Um, but it, rosary is uh, sometimes. Um, my daughter loves the rosary, mm, and so uh, we'll do our best to um, try to do some, at least maybe a decade or mm-hmm. something with as a family, um, and then a, a, the um, Jesus prayer has become mm-hmm. a little bit more significant, you know, and for me just, and what is the Jesus prayer for our listeners or it's Lord Jesus Christ, son of the living God, have mercy on me. Exactly. Right. And just, there's that tradition, right. Of just repeating that almost like breathing Lord Jesus Christ, son of the living God, have mercy on me. A sinner. We can say it when we're, when we can't sleep at night, right. We can say it when we're in pain. (laughs) And it's, and that, I mean, it becomes, just sort of like you said, it, it, it's almost like breathing. Like, mm-hmm. um, and so that that's become a more significant part of, of my devotional life. That's beautiful. And just last question: Is there a uh, like a, a a false belief that you held about God uh, that that kind of that you discovered right uh, something that was uh, you know like the truth at some point? Uh, it kind of helped you in your own journey. Yes, I think. The thing that stands out, and it, it becomes relevant in so many different ways, is that we're not in a competitive relationship mm, with God. Yeah, that He so transcends the world that that's what makes it possible that He's imminent within it. So it's unlike us, where we are three dimensional. You're sitting in that chair. Insofar as you're sitting in that chair, I can't. We're in a competitive relationship with respect to space. Yeah, but God's mm. not in that sort of relationship mm-hmm. with us. And so where that you know first started to have an impact on me was starting to think through justification, the the doctrine of justification Mm -hmm. is that, you know, God's will is not in competition with my will. It doesn't have Mm -hmm. to be either God did it or I did it. God does it and I do it. And so there there can be a cooperation there. Mm -hmm. And so so I I think in so many various ways in theology, especially say in the modern period, I think so many problems come down to mistakenly thinking yeah. God is a being in the world. 
Yeah. Like I'm going to mm -hmm. bump into them. Mm -hmm. Right. And mm -hmm. you see this with like the new atheists, like mm -hmm. in the way that they're trying to investigate the world as if God's going to be this little ball to find or mm -hmm. something like that. Well, you're not even talking about God. Yeah. And so some theologians mm -hmm. have sort of jokingly like, Oh, you, you've disproven that God. I never believed in that God. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And so, but yeah. And then thinking through the incarnation and mm, yeah. these kinds of things. Wow. That's so, that's so helpful. That theme of, uh, that we are not in competition with God, right? Mm. Uh, how, how, how beautiful. And, uh, so thank you very much for being on our show. Thank uh, you for having me. It's uh, been a wonderful opportunity to really kind of consider the mystery of the Eucharist with the teaching of uh, St. Thomas Aquinas. And uh, for any listeners who might be interested, there are a number of other episodes dedicated uh, to the Eucharistic revival. And so thanks again for being on our show and thanks for listening. Well, thanks for what you're doing and thanks for having me. Thank you so much for joining us for this podcast. If you like this episode, please rate and review it on your favorite podcast app to help others find the show. And if you want to take the next step, please consider joining our Annunciation Circle so we can continue to bring you more free content. We'll see you next time on The Catholic Theology Show.